is uh, good to open the Word of God with you today. Uh, so uh, if you were with us last week, we ended with the very last chapter of the entire Bible, and this morning uh, we start with the first. And so uh, however you prefer, you can be turning to uh, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to kind of be um, skipping through a lot uh, of passages today um, and just kind of telling some, some stories. The message is one that we used on our trip to California just a couple of weeks ago. And it's also one that uh, Super Summer is uh, based on this year. Uh, if you don't know, our students are going to Super Summer tomorrow. And uh, it's, it's simply called Sea to Sea, From Creation to the Church. And so we start with number one on your outline. It is creation. And we start with, in the beginning, God. God has always been here. From before time began, God was. And that's something that our minds cannot fully understand. And that's one reason why God is God and we are not. Because anything that, that I can fully wrap my mind around really is not much of a God at all. But our God is, is the only God. God created everything by the power of His spoken word. And I can tell you... Uh, while I am speaking here today, absolutely nothing will be created. But that's the power of God. Over and over in the first chapter of Genesis, it says, And God said, and it was so. God said, let there be land masses, and it was so. God said, let there be mountains, and it was so. God said, let there be canyons and waters and sky. Let there be beasts in the, on, those, on the land and, and fish in the, in the waters and birds in the sky. And it was so. And so something that we need to see today, when God says it, it is so. When God says it, it is so. Say that with me. When God says it, it is so. The Bible tells us that God spent five days creating everything with his spoken word. But on the sixth day... He created his most precious creation. He created people. And this time it wasn't by his spoken word. This time it was different. He got down and dirty and he created from the dust of the earth a man. And he named him Adam. And he took a rib from Adam and he made woman and called her Eve. And they were different from all the other creations in that God made man and woman in his own image. In his likeness. It means they were to be his image bearers wherever they went. And he breathed into them the breath of life. And he had a most perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that God made a garden for them to live in. And he told them, listen, you guys can eat from any fruit in the garden except this one tree. And it was the tree of life. And he told them that if you ate from that, if they ate from that tree, then they would die. It was absolutely beautiful. It was perfect. It was like nothing we have ever seen or experienced before. I need to tell you a little bit of a, a backstory before we move on. Because before creation, sometime before God created all that we've just talked about, God created angels. Angels are majestic beings whose job it was to worship God, the same creator God in heaven. And the most beautiful and prestigious angel was the worship leader, and his name was Lucifer. His story is told in Ezekiel 28. Lucifer began to have thoughts like, you know what, I think that I am 
better than God. I think I could do this whole thing better than him. God's not as good as he says he is. And Lucifer went to all the other angels and said, listen, I think I'm better than God. I think I can do this better than him. And about a third of the angels said, yeah, you know what, I think you're right. But two-thirds of them said, there's no way. There's no way you're better than God. Nobody is better than God. And so God, knowing what Lucifer and the angels agreed with him were up to, he cast them out of heaven He called him Satan, and he created a place called hell for them. And hell is described as eternal torment, eternal fire, eternally separated from God. There is no place more hopeless. So Satan came down to Eve in the garden. And he came disguised as a serpent. And he did what he still does today. He questioned God. Just like he tries to get us to do. He loves to raise the question, God didn't really say this, did he? He loves to get us to question if God even exists. Because he hates God and he hates people. He especially hates it when people worship God. Because that was once his job. Satan questioned Eve. God didn't really say you'd die if you ate this, did he? While Satan didn't make her do it, Eve chose to give in. And Adam was just as guilty because he took what Eve gave him. And that's when sin entered the world. The immediate result of sin is four things in Genesis chapter 3. First, sin caused humanity to be separated from God. God told both Adam and Eve, listen, I'm so holy you can't even be in my presence. You're going to have to leave the garden. Secondly, he told Adam, now you're going to have to work really hard to even scratch out a living. He told Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And he said to both of them, now you're going to die. Because remember, when God says it, it is so. And he said, if you eat this, you'll die. And they ate it, so now they would die. Well, Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden. They began to have children, and and generation after generation were born. The earth began to populate, and sin ran rampant. People continued to choose to go against God's good design and choose their own. But even so, God never forgot the perfect relationship that he had with his most precious creation, and he always had a plan to make everything right, even though sin separates people from him. That leads us to number two on your outline. As generations after generation were born, one day God came to a man named Abraham. That's number two on your outline. And there wasn't really anything standout special about Abraham. But because of God's grace, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the nations of the world will be blessed because of you. And God said to Abraham, listen, you're old and your wife is old, but I'm going to bless you with a son. And from that son will will come a great nation, and from that great nation will come the Messiah, the rescuer of my people. Now, when God says it, it is so. And sure enough, a son was born to the old couple. Abraham was 100. Sarah, his wife, was 90. When God blessed them with their firstborn promised son, his name was Isaac. 
can write that down. His name was Isaac. And again, generation after generation came and went. Just like God said, a great nation was born. And years later, God came to a man, number three on your outline, named Moses. And he gave Moses ten laws. You can write those down. He gave Moses ten laws, and he told Moses, give these ten rules to my people, and if they'll just keep these ten laws, then they can have a right relationship with me and a right relationship with each other. Now that sounded easy enough. They probably thought something like, okay, just keep these ten laws. We can have a right relationship with God. We can have a right relationship with each other. Sounds easy enough. We can do that. But what they quickly discovered was, They could not keep those ten laws. They could not keep them. Someone would covet something someone else had. Someone would lust after someone else. And soon they realized, if this is what it takes to have a right relationship with God, then we're in trouble because we can't do it. They couldn't keep them. So once again, God stepped in and he said, okay, here's what I'll allow you to do. This will be a temporary fix for your sin. And that's when he introduced animal sacrifices. The next blank on your outline. Animal sacrifices. And God said, it is impossible for sins to be forgiven without the shedding of blood. You bring an animal into the temple and kill it, and that animal's blood will pour out on my altar, and that will be a temporary fix for your sins. No matter their economic situation. The people always had a temporary way to pay for their sins. Whether it was from a bull or a lamb or a bird, God provided a way. Most people would sacrifice a lamb. And history tells us that families, they would get a lamb and they would spend some time with it. So that it would kind of become part of the family. And at the appointed time, the dad of that family, he would take the lamb to the temple and lay his hand on the forehead of the lamb and take a knife and shed that innocent lamb's blood on God's altar. And it would serve as a temporary fix to pay for the sins of that family. Because it is impossible for sins to be forgiven without the shedding of blood. Pretty soon, another problem developed. People just began taking the animal sacrifices for granted. It just became another religious ritual, another religious hoop to jump through. They were forgetting the meaning behind it and using it as an excuse to sin. Well, later, if I sin, it's okay because I can just take a lamb to the temple and be forgiven. And just like it can be for us today, anything we do here, it, it turned into just religion. It was empty. So God came to a man, number four on your outline, named Isaiah. And he came to some other prophets as well, but he he told Isaiah, listen, you tell my people that I am sick and tired of their empty religion. I'm sick and tired of my people using blood sacrifices as another religious ritual. I'm sick and tired of my people using the sacrifice as an excuse to sin. So you tell my people that I will send the perfect lamb. I will send the perfect Lamb of God. And when God says it, it is so. 
He's already said it's impossible for sins to be forgiven without the shedding of blood. But when the Lamb of God, when, when the Lamb of God's blood is shed, that one won't be temporary. Anyone who embraces the Lamb of God's blood for their sins will be permanently forgiven. But if they reject it, then they will go to the place called hell, the same place made for Satan and his demons forever separated from God. Well, history tells us about 740 years passed. 340 were in the Old Testament, and there were about 400 between the Old and New Testament where God was intentionally silent. Imagine the hopelessness of that. Imagine the weight of that. Generations would come and go and pass the stories on to their families, and they'd say, remember, God said through Isaiah the prophet that one day he would send the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world for all who embrace his blood. It will cover sins for good once and for all, but over 740 years, some people forgot. Some people went back to religion. Then one day, there's a man named John the Baptist, number five on your outline. And I picture John the Baptist as a big, burly guy. He was preaching out in the wilderness to the multitudes that were there to listen. And one day he pointed at someone in the crowd and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was pointing to Jesus in John 1.29. Jesus is number six on your outline. Jesus had a, a big following. And he did incredible miracles that no one had ever seen. Uh, one time in John 2, he was at a wedding, and they ran out of wine. And so Jesus turned some water into wine, and it was better than what they had, had to start with. Another time, in Mark 4, Jesus stood on the bow of a boat in the middle of a storm where the waves were crashing in over the side, and the people he was with, they thought they were going to die. Jesus stood up and said, be still. Just with his, his spoken word, he calmed the storm next blank there on your outline, it shows that Jesus has power over nature. Another time, Matthew 14, Jesus was out in the wilderness teaching, and there were about 5,000 men plus women and children, probably close to 20,000 people there, and lunchtime came, and all they had to eat was five loaves and two fish, and so Jesus took it, and he multiplied it and fed all 20,000 with 12 baskets full left over. It shows us the next blank on your outline that Jesus has power over needs. Another time in John 11, Jesus stood at the tomb of a dear friend. His name was Lazarus, and he had been dead for four days. So Jesus told them to roll the stone away. And when they did, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did, grave clothes and all. And it shows us that Jesus has power over over death. And then another time. In Mark 5, Jesus came to the shore and was met by a man that was demon possessed. The people in town, they couldn't keep him chained up. He wouldn't keep clothes on. But Jesus talked to him. And he talked to the demons in him and told them to leave. And so they did. And they went into this herd of 2,000 pigs that ran off a cliff and drowned. 
into the lake. When the, when the townspeople came to see what the commotion was, they found the man clothed and in his right mind, sitting there talking to Jesus. It tells us that Jesus has power over demons. Jesus would give sight to the blind. He would give hearing to the deaf, and he would give legs to the crippled. Miracle after incredible miracle. He would say things that people loved to hear, like, I have come to give life more abundantly, John 10, 10. Or, my grace is sufficient for you. And people loved to hear that sort of thing. They would follow him to hear them. But then he started saying things that people didn't like. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. And he said, I and my Father are one in John 10, 30. And so he was saying that he was God. And the religious leaders, they started hating him for it. And people began to hate him for it. And one day, they had Jesus arrested and brought before the high priest. And they were trying to come up with charges against him. And they would have one person tell a story about him. And then they would have another person tell a story, but those didn't add up. And then when they brought in another story, it didn't add up with any of them. And up to this point, Jesus was silent. And so the high priest said to, said to Jesus, what, are you not going to say anything in your defense? And so finally he asked Jesus, are you the Christ the Son of God, and in Mark 14, 62, Jesus replied, I am, and you will see me sitting at the right hand of power in heaven. Well, the high priest went ballistic. What more testimony do we need? He thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's the Son of God. Let him be crucified. And so they stirred up the crowd against him and condemned him to death. But notice this. Jesus didn't die because of something he did. You can write that down. I mean, even their stories, they, they didn't add up. Jesus died because of who he is. It wasn't until the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus answered, Yes, that they condemned him to death. They had a special whip designed to dig in and tear away the most flesh. It was called the cat of nine tails, and they beat Jesus with it. They fashioned a crown of thorns, and they, they, they shoved it into his head. They made him carry a beam for, for his cross on his shredded back up a hill where they took and nailed him to a cross. They crucified him. During all this time, blood began to pour from his body. I remember... When God says it, it is so. And God said, it's impossible for sins to be forgiven without the shedding of blood. And he also said, I will send the perfect lamb of God. Jesus was that lamb. The perfect lamb of God, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But that's not the end of the story. They laid him in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Remember, Jesus has power over death. And a rumor began to circulate that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, but his disciples, they knew where they, where they buried him, and so they took 
his body and, and put it somewhere else. So how do we know that that really didn't happen? How do we know that all of this that has been presented here today is really true? Well, a few reasons. First of all, the Bible says it. And that's enough for probably most of us. But it's not enough for some. But we have historical documents, historical books like books of martyrs that record the deaths of these disciples. History tells us that one named Bartholomew, he was skinned alive. Thomas was tied between two horses and ripped apart. Peter was crucified upside down, just like Jesus said he would. Some accounts say after John was boiled alive twice, then he was exiled to the island of Patmos for what he believed about Jesus. And on and on the stories go. But here's the point. The next blank's on your outline. Men don't lie to get into trouble. Men lie to get out of trouble. I mean, think about it. I guarantee you, if it wasn't true, if they hadn't seen him killed and then seen him alive, the second they started tying Thomas to those horses, or the second that they picked up that knife and began skinning Bartholomew, or when they picked up the nail and the hammer to nail Peter to the cross, if it hadn't been true, they would have spoken up and said something like, okay, all right, you're right. We're just messing with you. We're seeing how far we could get. We took his body and we put it in a cave outside of town. We'll take you to him. But they didn't because they couldn't. They didn't because what they were saying was true. Jesus really was alive. Jesus was on earth 40 days after his resurrection. And he appeared to 500 people. And any of those people would say, I don't care what you have to do. You can stone me. You can skin me alive. You can boil me. Do whatever you have to. I cannot deny that I saw Jesus alive. Men don't lie to get into trouble. Men lie to get out of trouble. Jesus alive was no lie. So by the showing of hands. How many of us believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Across the room. Okay, so uh, how many have met him? None of us have. We We all believe that he was the first president of the United States, even though none of us have met him. Why is that? Well, because we have eyewitness accounts. We have history books that tell us that it's true. Well, it's the same with Jesus. None of us have seen him, ever met him face to face. We have historic documents that tell us, we have eyewitness accounts, 500 people, more than 500 people that say it's true. So while Jesus was on earth those 40 days after his resurrection, he told all those people that he appeared to, tell people that my blood was shed so their sins could be forgiven. If they will repent and turn from their sins and turn to Jesus, not as a religious act, 
but in their hearts believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And his sacrifice, his blood shed, is the only sacrifice able to pay for and cover all their sins, then they will have eternal life and escape the hopelessness of hell. He said, tell them to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tell them to go and tell others this truth about Jesus and the truth that he taught. Jesus told this to his disciples. Number seven on your on your outline, the apostles. He ascended to heaven, up into the clouds, as, as the apostles, the disciples, they watched. And even when they couldn't see him anymore, they kept watching, and pretty soon angels came and said, why are you, why are you looking into the sky? Go and do what he told you to do. And so they did. Even in the midst of immense persecution, they began to tell people, And more and more people began to believe and be baptized. They started meeting together in groups to encourage and pray for each other and to meet each other's needs. And one group would meet in this region, and then another group would meet in this region, and then another one over there. And that's where we get the church, number eight. The church would meet and discuss how they could tell others about Jesus. And one day... Somebody told me that I could be made right with God by trusting in what Jesus did. That his blood would cover my sin if I would believe. Not just in my head, but in my heart and invite him to be the Lord of my life. December 11th, 1989, I did. Now my role is to tell others. And that's what I'm here to do today. You are a part of the church, and you're called to do the same thing. So if you have a bulletin, look at your outline real quick. This is creation to the church, and and chances are good that you've heard likely all of these stories. If not, that's okay. But the truth is, it doesn't have to be told exactly like this. There are other Old Testament stories that may come to mind. But this C2C is an evangelism tool that you can use to tell others about Jesus. If you have trusted in what Jesus did to save you from your sins, your eternity has been forever changed. Because someone told you. Now we're called to do the same. In this new series that we are, are starting today, we are investigating this thing called church. Now, anytime an investigation starts, there are some questions that are just pretty standard to ask. Who, what, when, where, why, how. We're going to ask these of the church and of, of Jesus Who is the church? What is the church? What is it supposed to do? When did it start? Where is it now? Where is it called to go? How is it supposed to look? How is it supposed to function? We hope to conclude by answering one more. So what now? Who, what, when, where, why, how now? What's next for us as First Baptist in Potosi? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes as we go into a, a time of invitation?
Which one of these stories stands out to you the most? And there are precious Bible stories that we can use to tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives. When did you come to know him? Like I told you, December 11th, 1989. I'll never forget that day. I remember the place. I remember part of the prayer, but I remember finally getting it. When did you get it? You don't have to remember the date. For some people, it takes more than just one day. It's a process. But when did you come to know Jesus? If you can't come up with a day or a time period, maybe you need to check your heart just to see if you really know him. That's most important here today. That's most important as we, as we launch this new series. Do you know him? Have you been baptized like he told you to be? Are you a part of the church? Lord, we invite you to come, and we thank you for the encouragement of these old stories that we probably, most of us, know. Lord, it is your word, and so we trust that it will not return void. So we ask that it will do what, what you set it out to do. Lord, if there are any here today who don't know you, may today be the day of salvation. Lord, for the rest of us, help us to live, to tell others about you, so that the church will continue to multiply. We need your help to do that, Lord. Give us the strength we need. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.